Welcome back to the Humble Jurist Podcast. My name is Jim Mitchell, and in today's episode, we interview Dave Garner, practicing attorney and international chair of the J. Reuben Clark Law Society. We discuss a presentation he gave during BYU Education Week in August of 2023 titled, When a Judge Rules That Mormons Aren't Christian, a Case Study on the Limitations of Judicial Intervention into Religious Disputes. Take a listen. All right. I'm joined here with Dave Garner. Um, Welcome to the Humble Jurist Podcast, Dave. Hey, thanks for having me. Um, Thank you so much. We were just chatting briefly beforehand on how when we scheduled this, we we did not know there was going to be the Game 3 of the World Series (laughs) and our beloved home team, the Diamondbacks, are participating in that. So... I really do appreciate you making the time to to be here with us and to uh, share some some knowledge and some information with us tonight. Um, I mean, the Diamondbacks are truly important, but the ecclesiastical abstention doctrine, in the grand scheme of things, is probably takes some priority. <laughs> <laughs> At least that's what we'll tell ourselves for tonight. <laughs> absolutely, that's what we'll remember about tonight: ecclesiastical abstention. Absolutely. So, uh, Dave, b- before we get started here, um, I'd like to invite you, if it's okay, if you could share with the listeners just a little bit about yourself, your journey into uh, the practice of law and where your career has taken you up to this point and what you what areas you, you currently practice in. Yeah, no, happy to do it. I, so I am a, uh, a proud uh, alumnus of the BYU Law School. I also did my undergrad at BYU. Um, I was a high school English teacher for a couple of years in between undergrad and going back to law school. I'm also the son of uh, a couple of educators. My mom was an elementary school teacher and my dad was uh, in CES, uh, a longtime uh, seminary institute teacher at Northern Arizona University. So I got education in my blood. Um, it's something I've always been passionate about. Uh, and even when I went back to law school, I always kind of had an eye on somehow staying connected to education in my law practice. Uh, and I graduated in 2000 and went to a firm that had a, uh, an education law practice. Um, but I, over the years, uh, eventually became more and more of a commercial litigator. <laughs> Uh, but about six or seven years ago, uh, one of my former partners at that firm reached out to me and, and uh, 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 indicated that she had developed a dedicated school law practice at uh, my current firm, Osborne Maladon. And I came over and joined her and had been doing uh, education law uh, almost exclusively since that time, representing schools from K-12 to colleges and universities, public, private starter schools, traditional school districts, uh, pretty much any any uh, type of school uh, is uh, within my scope of practice, and, and I truly enjoy it. Oh, okay, great. And can you tell us a little bit about what, um, what's been your involvement in the J. Reuben Clark Law Society? Uh, with the Law Society, I've, I've been actively involved for, geez, I don't even know how long now, but it's it's probably been close to uh, you know a dozen years or so. 
where I've really picked up and been active. We're, we're very lucky here in the Phoenix area to have a, a very strong chapter of the Law Society uh, and with a good tradition of, of, of putting on some quality events and, and having a good core of uh, lawyers who, who serve faithfully on the board. And, and, uh, and I've been the beneficiary of, uh, of that uh, heritage and have uh, uh, served on the local board here and eventually uh, worked on some of the uh, uh, committees at the international level. Uh, more recently as the Leadership Development Committee Chair um, and then uh, uh, working on at the uh, Operations Committee level. And, and now uh, for some uh, uh, odd reason, uh, uh, somebody decided it might be useful to have me to be the international chair. So here I am, uh, hopefully hopefully for better and not for worse. <laughs> but it's a, it's a great thing to be a part of and I'm, I'm, I'm very pleased to be involved in such a wonderful organization with a, a great mission and a lot of people dedicated to uh, to advancing that mission in their individual practice. Um, so Dave, let's, let's jump into this. So, um, you recently did some research and, and you participated in a, in a case, um, and you titled this, uh, research when a judge rules that Mormons aren't Christian, a case study on the limitations of judicial intervention into religious disputes. And I got to say just a fantastic title of your material um i was right away interested in kind of diving in and learning more about this um i could say uh growing up as a practicing member of the church of jesus christ of latter-day saints uh it's a real debate that comes up from time to time um is that something that uh you've been aware of or have you experienced that debate um on whether whether Mormons are Christian? Well, I uh, I, I certainly understand that uh, in general that there are discussions outside of uh, of the LDS Church about uh, whether uh, we fall within the the scope of Christianity. I'm not sure I ever uh, spent a lot of time diving into the details. Um, you know, I, I think it's at some point I read uh, the materials on the church website that addressed that issue. Uh, but it's not something that I ever expected to come across uh, in the context of a judicial ruling. Um, and so I, I suppose that's really what uh, caught my eye and my interest in this particular matter. And I agree with you. Obviously, the title is, is a little jarring to those who are members of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Uh, certainly, we consider ourselves Christians. So to, to uh, you know, see a scenario in which a judge had ruled to the contrary is something that really hits at the heart of, <laughs> of a core belief. Um, and uh, so uh, so that's really what got me, got me fired up, just like it probably did for most people who saw that title and said, I'm going to come here and hear what Dave Garner has to say about that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. And um, in, in your material, you... You cite to a, a, a scripture in the Book of Mormon. It's a Second Nephi twenty five twenty six, and it says here: "And we talk of Christ, we rejoice in Christ, we preach of Christ, we prophesy of Christ, and we write according to our prophecies." 
that our children may know to what source they may look for for a remission of their sins. Why why did you choose that uh, scripture to to kind of start off your material? Well, I mean, I suppose uh, I, I could choose from a number of scriptures, and uh, but but this I think is one that that most at least members of the church are quite familiar with, and and certainly encapsulates. Uh, you know, a, a, our view and, and, and my personal view about the centrality of Christ to our religious beliefs. Uh, and, uh, you know, I'm just not sure you could say it any more succinctly than is laid out in 2 Nephi 25, 26 uh, as kind of a, a foundation starting point for making the case that, uh, that quote unquote Mormons are indeed Christians. Yeah. So let's move right into the case here. It's it's Ball v. Ball. Uh, it was a decision by the Arizona Court of Appeals. And I know that you played uh, an important part of this case. So I was hoping you could kind of take our listeners through the, the factual summary of the case and also the uh, procedural procedural history of how this started and worked its way through the courts. Yeah, of course. Uh, and, and I should say, I mean, this this is a, a child custody case, so it, it has nothing to do with education law, <laughs> uh, you know, far outside my my typical practice. And and in that context, I should I should acknowledge um, a colleague and a, a friend of mine uh, by, by the name of Paul Riggs. Paul's uh, another attorney here in the Phoenix area and uh uh, and he is a family law practitioner, and I, I pulled him into this as well, just to make sure I didn't cross any any lines in the uh, in the family law environment. Uh, and he was he was a great support uh, both in the appeal here and also in helping out our client with respect to some collateral issues that uh, took place in the lower court. Uh, but uh, but to your question, you know, uh, how this case came to me, and 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 maybe I spend a second on that just because I think this is is uh, indicative of what individual law society members can do uh, in terms of promoting the, the mission of the law society, in addition to things like attending you know, the annual conference or, or participating in a, uh, in, in a CLE event that the local chapter puts on. This is something that, that just uh, uh, spoke to me as, as a, an individual who uh, uh, appreciates the mission of the society and believes that uh, my religious beliefs should inform my practice of law and gave me an opportunity to, to practice that in, the, in a context where I, I use my legal skills. Um, I, uh, I got a call from a friend of mine who is a, uh, who, who, uh, is a member of the law society and works for the Beckett Fund. He's also a law school classmate of mine and and uh, deals with these types of cases on a regular basis, but uh, uh, for a variety of reasons, wanted to see if uh, if I might be willing to take this on pro bono in in Arizona, uh, and uh, and to provide some support for that. That's uh, Eric Baxter, and a number of your listeners or our listeners are probably uh, familiar with Eric. He's a great advocate of religious liberty causes uh, in a variety of contexts and. And he said, "Will you take this on?" And, and when I read the facts and and uh, the background on it, you know, was uh, fired up and, and excited to participate. Um, so with that backstory, here's the basic facts. <laughs> so <laughs> our client, 
our client was uh, Sean Ball. Uh, and uh, he and his ex-wife were the uh, parents of two minor teenage children. They got divorced in 2017 and they represented themselves uh, and uh, entered into a default decree with a parenting plan, which was adopted by the court. And, and that decree provided for what we in Arizona call joint legal decision-making authority, uh, meaning as it suggests that they both have the ability to continue making legal decisions on behalf of, of their children. Um, and, and that's kind of the, the foundation of where we got out. And, and as part of that uh, um, joint default decree that they drafted without lawyers, they filled out what was called a parenting plan. Um, and the parenting plan is there's a variety of statutory requirements or boxes that need to be checked uh, in a parenting plan. And one of them is that uh, it needs to include uh, each parent's rights and responsibilities for the personal care of the children and for decisions in areas such as education, healthcare, and religious training. Um, and so that's that's kind of where the, the nub of the case came from is what they filled out with respect to uh, joint legal decision-making when it concerns religious training. Um, and, and we'll see in the materials, uh, I, I put a, a, a section of, of that parenting plan and, and there's a form that the Maricopa County Superior Court puts out to kind of help people make sure they check the boxes uh, of the legal requirements in the statute. Uh, it's not required, but it's uh, just helpful for folks. And it has a section there about religious education arrangements and, uh, and that's where, uh, you know, the dispute eventually uh, devolved from. So uh, <laughs> I, I can keep going or you can ask a question. <laughs> okay. So they, um, there's this default decree, it's, there's a parenting plan, uh, a joint parenting plan. And um, how, how long is this plan in place before, um, before father's conversion process? Uh, so uh, so they, they, they got divorced, I believe, in 2017. Um, and uh, you know, I'm, I may be fudging on the timeline a little bit. It's been a, it's been a few years, so uh, I'm a little fuzzy. But, there, but it was at least a, a couple of years, maybe three, a couple of years after they were divorced. That uh, that father, you know, got in contact with the the, the missionaries and and it eventually uh, converted and was baptized a member of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter Day Saints. So uh, so it was at least a couple of years. Okay. And uh, did he start to uh, introduce the church to his to his children? Yeah, so so the the way this uh, ended up becoming a, a legal dispute was, um, you know, he he began to take his kids to church on on the rare occasion when he had them on Sundays. Typically, under their you know, parenting plan and arrangements, the kids were with mom on Sundays, uh, so it wasn't really an issue. But uh, but it came to light that when they were with dad on Sundays, that he was taking them to church and uh, and. And mom objected to that. Uh, and, and the basis for her objection was this religious education arrangement provision in the parenting plan. 
uh, and maybe just to set the stage for our listeners about, because this was the core of the dispute when it came to the court, was there in that in that in that form that the uh, Maricopa County Superior Court uh, uh, made available for folks to use under religious education arrangement. It had three check boxes, and it specifically indicated at the top that the parties were generally uh, to choose one of the three options. <laughs> and the three options were, one, each parent may take the minor children to a church or place of worship of his or her choice during the time that the minor children are in his or her care. So basically, we agree as parents that, you know, when you have the kids, you can take them to whatever church you want. When I have the kids, I can take them to church wherever I want. So that's option number one. Option number two was both parents agree that the minor children may be instructed in the fill-in-the-blank faith. So that option would be, look, we agree. We're not going to agree to specific churches or anything of that nature, but we generally have an agreement that instruction should be in whatever the fill-in-the-blank faith was. And then the final option was both parents agree that religious arrangements are not applicable to this plan. Basically, we don't really care about religion. It's not something that we need to agree upon with respect to our children. So those are the three options that are laid out in this form. Uh, and again, it says to choose one. Well, the fly in the ointment to some extent is that when both Sean Ball and his wife filled out this uh, uh, parenting plan, they checked the first two boxes. And with respect to the second box, they said both parents agree that the minor children may be instructed in the Christian faith. So uh, so in any event, mom now finding out that dad's become converted to the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, uh, which she called the Mormon Church, and finding out that the kids are being taken to this church and, and uh, presumably being instructed in its doctrine, uh, she takes umbrage with that. And in her view, the, the quote-unquote Mormon Church is not Christian. And in her view, the parenting plan required the children to be instructed in the Christian faith. And therefore, by taking them to the Mormon church, dad was violating the parenting plan. And she was not happy about that and decided to take them to court uh, in order to, to correct what she viewed to be a violation of the agreement, uh, which had been adopted as part of the divorce decree. Okay. Okay. So mom um, is unhappy with the situation of her kids being introduced to um, the LDS faith, and she files an objection and requests a hearing. I believe it's referred to as, as an enforcement hearing. Um, and I, I believe that there was maybe one or two separate hearings on this matter. Uh, could you tell the, the listeners a little bit about how what, what happened in these hearings? Let's... Um, I guess with the first hearing. Yeah. So, so again, mom, mom is unhappy with the situation and believes dad's violating the parenting plan and thus the divorce decree. So she files an enforcement uh, uh, action um, and goes into court and basically uh, uh, introduces to the judge, hey, uh, my, my ex-husband is now taking these kids to the Mormon church. It's not a Christian church. We agreed that the children should be instructed in the Christian faith. So, you know, I want you to, you know, slap his hand and tell him he can't do this. 
Uh, and the judge is taken a little, little aback uh, by the claim, and, and he, he kind of goes back and forth. He, he reads the language of the parenting plan, and, and you know, first of all, as it says, the second option says both parents agree that the minor children may be instructed in the Christian faith. And at some point tells the mom, well, that may doesn't seem, you know, it's not, doesn't appear to be mandatory. It appears to be optional. And uh, uh, and so he kind of goes back and forth on that. And she says, well, we, we both intended for the children to be instructed in the Christian faith. And ultimately the judge says, well, you know, I'm, I'm not going to get into that today. I, I, I'm not prepared to hear evidence on that. And I'm certainly not an expert about what qualifies as being within the Christian faith. So what I'm going to do is set this for an evidentiary hearing somewhere down the road. And, and I think, frankly, you know, behind the scenes, I think the judge in the meantime was was probably hoping that they just work this out. You know, that this is not really something that uh, that they they should bring to the court and something they ought to be able to work out on their own. But he says, you know, we'll set this hearing. And uh, and if we need to, we'll we'll have a uh, uh, an evidentiary hearing on this issue. So that was the first issue, uh, for or the first hearing, um, and it just ended with, we'll come back and and have an evidentiary hearing, if we need to. Okay, and uh, eventually it looks like they decided they needed another hearing, and I believe it was at this next one. Correct me if I'm wrong, where the mother brings in uh, a religious expert. Right, right. And I should say that at the end of the first hearing, the judge basically, you know, said, uh, if we have this hearing, it's, he anticipated it would be, quote, a battle of the religious experts, close quote. Um, so again, they, they didn't sort it out. So they come back after the next scheduled hearing. And sure enough, they, they're, they're, they're wanting that they haven't settled the issue amongst themselves. And uh, now they're prepared to put on evidence of this hearing. And the judge expresses some surprise, uh, you know, quoting from the transcript. He says, I didn't actually think we were going to have a hearing today on the issue of what is or is not within the definition of Christianity. But here we are. <laughs> I, saw, I saw you. And I saw you quoted that from this transcript. And I just, I couldn't help but think of um, the judge kind of knew it was maybe heading into murky ground here um with with quote with that you know i didn't think we'd be going there but but here we are uh, but he certainly went down that road well he did and, and i have to be careful you know not to throw this particular judge under the bus uh you know i i'm uh, sensitive to the fact that particularly in family court judges get asked all the time to probably make decisions that they they feel uh, you know, people, uh, rational people ought to be able to make on their own without judges' intervention. Um, and I, I think in some, to some extent, he probably just got carried away a little bit in the, in the moment and, and was probably exasperated with the parties here. Um, but, uh, but as you point out, you know, he says, well, we'll, we'll put on the, 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 the experts here. And, and as you, uh, indicated, mom, uh, who, by the way, she was represented by counsel in this hearing. Uh, the, the father uh, was not represented by counsel. He was there, uh, you know, representing himself. Uh, and mom had brought with her, uh, perhaps not surprisingly, a, uh, a minister from her own particular church, uh, who was a youth ministry leader. Uh, and when he testified, he indicated that 
His expertise derived from the, the fact that he held a master's of arts in ministry. Uh, and not only that, he claimed to know about the, both the Mormon faith and the Protestant faith, of which mom was a, uh, a, a proponent, from uh, his personal experience because his father was a Protestant and his mother was a, a practicing Mormon, uh, he, he said, up until about two years ago. So that those were his credentials. Okay. And I'm, I'm glad you said that. Is, is there some kind of uh, baseline finding that the court needs to make in order to um, uh, find that someone isn't expert in these matters? Uh, well, if there, if there is, there, there wasn't any specific discussion about that in this case. Um, you know, and, and I'm, I'm, you know, obviously dad represented himself was not, uh, uh, you know, uh, legally savvy enough to be able to ask for something like a Daubert hearing or something like we might see in a, in a commercial litigation context. Uh, but in any event, you know, the, the, the judge obviously listened to uh, his recitation of qualifications and whether he treated him specifically as an expert in a uh, some legal sense or just you know, took that uh, uh, testimony as and gave it the weight that he felt it may deserve uh, in comparison to other evidence that was put on. It's, it's hard to tell. Uh, but okay. that's what he presented and, and uh and that's what uh, he, he testified under under those credentials. <laughs> yeah. And um, can you can you go into a little about what he what was his testimony about um, Christianity? Yeah. So, I mean, he 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 testified uh, about he, he differentiated between what he viewed as uh, you know more traditional Christianity and Mormonism. Um, and he, he had a he had a chart or basically a table that on the one side, it talked about what, you know, he viewed traditional Christianity to view as, as requirements of salvation or like the nature of the Trinity uh, and what constitutes scripture and talked about the difference between, you know, uh, historical Christianity being confined to the Bible as opposed to Mormonism having these other uh, uh, documents that are considered scriptural in nature and and the three-in-one nature of the Godhead as opposed to individuals. So he went down through some of the things that, uh, you know, you might expect uh, uh, people to debate in, in normal conversations uh, where this issue may come up uh, about, you know, what, what maybe differentiates, uh, you know, members of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints from other uh, Christian sects on these, on these points. So that was, you know, basically his his spiel okay okay um so mother mother and father they provided testimony at this hearing didn't they yeah yeah it, it seemed like mother's testimony seemed to focus quite a bit on on the intent of the parties um what why did that become important in this hearing and in the judge's decision well, it's important because I think mom and, and her attorney recognized that the parenting plan was uh, ambiguous in the sense that it instructed them to check one box and they checked two. So they felt the need to explain uh, and to provide some context about what the parties actually meant when they checked two boxes instead of one. Um, and I also think, you know, as an attorney, you know, you certainly would have recognized when you use the language may be instructed in the Christian faith you've got a problem because that's not mandatory. It basically just says 
well, kind of we agree that uh, if somebody wants to, they can instruct them in the Christian faith, but you don't have to. And of course, their whole argument here was based upon the premise that the parties agreed that they were required to instruct the children in the Christian faith and Mormonism wasn't part of the Christian faith. So that's kind of where mom went down that line about trying to explain to the judge, this is what we really meant. And her testimony was what we wanted to say, what we were trying to capture in this agreement was that either parent could take the children to whatever church they wanted to, so long it was, as it was the Christian faith. And then her argument about uh, Mormonism was, we never talked about the Mormon church. We never, uh, we never intended to include Mormonism with Christianity. It was never a part of any of the historical churches that we attended. And so it was, it was far from the intent of the parties to include Mormonism, quote unquote, as part of the Christian faith. Okay. And you said father was not represented here at the trial level. What, and he testified, what did, what did he focus on in his testimony? <laughs> well, you know, as, as what happens with proper uh, uh, clients uh, or proper uh, individuals in court, you know, it was not sophisticated about the rules of procedure and he came equipped to to pro provide some documentary evidence he had a he had a copy of the articles of faith uh, and if uh, memory serves a couple of other things that he wanted to introduce into the record but unfortunately he, he hadn't disclosed them properly in advance of the hearing as required by the rules um, and so the judge uh, you know precluded him from from presenting the documentary evidence that he had uh, brought along with him because it wasn't properly disclosed. Uh, but what the father was allowed to do, and of course was appropriate, is he was allowed to testify on his own behalf. <laughs> so he got up there on the witness stand and and, uh, uh, and and bore his testimony, both in the legal sense and in the religious sense. Uh, it's a, it's a, a testimony that would be just as worthy of being presented over the pulpit on fast and testimony meeting uh, as it was in this court proceeding. And, and uh, as I reviewed the transcript in connection with my work on the appeal, it just really touched my heart to, to read his words. Um, and, uh, and, and this is what he said. Yeah, he got up and put, was put under oath and he says, I love God with all my heart, might, mind, and uh, might, mind, and might. I love my Savior, who's Jesus Christ. I have not drifted from worshiping my Creator through Jesus Christ. And I plan to teach my children all that it means by taking them to church and discussing the gospel inside my home. Um, and oh, I'm reading this in the before that he says, I'm professing to be of the Christian faith in that Jesus Christ is the center point of my faith. I am not only a Christian, but more of a practicing follower of Jesus Christ than ever before in my entire life. My church bears his name and always emphasizes we should feast on the words of Christ. And, and that was his testimony. And that, that was his evidence uh, at the hearing uh, that, uh, that quote-unquote Mormonism was in fact part of the Christian faith. Yeah, I'm, I'm glad. And I'm, thank you so much for, for sharing from the transcript. Uh, because I agree. I thought it was um, a powerful statement. I can picture in the courtroom a, a, a proper 
um, you know, party to a matter um, without legal counsel kind of doing the best they can to present their case and and him doing his best to share what's in his heart and what he believes. And and I, I thought that was pretty powerful. OK, Dave, so we talked a little about the, the evidence presented at court and the father's the testimony that he provided. Um, so what was the the ultimate ruling of the trial court? And if you could point out any findings or orders of the court that you found interesting or, or troublesome. Well, yeah, I mean, obviously the, the outcome at the trial court level what wasn't something that uh, was was favorable to uh, uh, the father who ultimately became um, my client. Uh, and, and the judge's ruling, uh, the court's ruling is, is a little stark. Uh, you know, reading from it, um, it says, the court finds that at the time the parties entered into the parenting plan, both parties were practicing the Christian faith and agreed the children would be instructed only in that faith. And then it goes on to say, Mormonism is a separate and distinct religion from Christianity. And jumping down, the court finds that Mormonism does not fall within the confines of the Christian faith, and thus instructing the children in a faith other than Christianity violates the parenting plan. Um, and so that was kind of the, the ultimate you know, conclusion of the of the hearing and and uh and the the order was that the mormon faith is not part of the christian faith as set forth in the party's parenting plan and absent an agreement absent agreement of the parties the children shall only be instructed in a christian faith which does not include mormonism uh so that's that's reading directly from the ruling uh and uh, ultimately the so the, the court ordered the father in addition, under uh, relevant kind of family law uh, statutes, to also be responsible for paying the mother's attorney's fees for this proceeding, which uh, I, I don't recall the exact amount, but amounted to a few thousand dollars. Okay. As you received this case and you started preparing it, as you went over these findings of the court and the, the court order, what were some of your initial thoughts or reactions to some of this language? Like the court finds that Mormonism does not fall within the confines of Christian faith. Well, you know, I obviously had two reactions. Uh, one was just as a, as a member of the, the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. And the other one was as a lawyer, uh, as, as a member, you know, certainly seeing that uh, language is, you know, strikes a, a an initial reaction of, well, that's not true. <laughs> uh, in a in a factual sense, uh, obviously, we certainly consider ourselves to be Christian and and look at the name of the church and uh, we, we prominently emphasize Jesus Christ. Uh, so, you, you know, from a, from just a, a bare, bare factual matter and religious doctrine matter, it just seemed wrong headed. Uh, but uh, you know, the reaction, obviously, with my hat as a lawyer, was also one that, geez, uh, you know, it, it just doesn't seem right. And you know, it's been a while since I took my uh, you know con law class in college or in, in law school. But that you know, 
secular judges and uh, as an arm of the government shouldn't be deciding who gets to be Christian and who isn't. Uh, so, you know, the, those were the initial thoughts that were swimming around in my mind and, and obviously were uh, the, the issues that prompted, uh, you know, outreach from my uh, former law school classmate at the Beckett Fund and kind of got, got us involved in, the, in helping represent the father on appeal. Okay. So we're going to get into the appeal, but I, I wanted to jump into the ecclesiastical abstention doctrine. And so we'll, we'll get into uh, the nuts and bolts of it, but I wanted to ask you just in, in a nutshell, what, what is the ecclesiastical abstention doctrine? Yeah, I mean, old, that was uh, the primary argument that we made on appeal um, uh, that uh, the, the, it's really a, a, a legal doctrine that encapsulates the idea that, that, uh, you know, judges should not be deciding matters of ecclesiastical doctrine, um, and uh, you know it, it it ultimately has its basis in the First Amendment, and uh, you know, the First Amendment itself guarantees that both individuals and churches have the power to decide for themselves, free from state interference, matters of church government as well as those of faith and doctrine, and that's a citation to a. Supreme Court decision back in the 1950s, the, the Kedroff versus St. Nicholas Cathedral of the Russian Orthodox Church. So that kind of puts it in, in uh, you know, kind of reduces this to it, to its re reduces the doctrine to its its essence um, and, uh, you know, ties it to uh, the, the First Amendment uh, religion clauses that we're generally familiar with. What what matters are typically considered ecclesiastical and, and that the court should abstain from interfering in like, um, are there some general topics defined by case law or whatever that in general, the courts are supposed to stay away from? Yeah, for sure. Uh, and, and they, they, they can range. It's, it's not just a, 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 a defined bullet point list, but there are several things that are, uh, universally kind of held to to fall within that uh, ecclesiastical abstention doctrine. Uh, things that in the matters that concern faith or doctrine, uh, what we might call theological controversies, uh, that makes sense. Uh, issues of church discipline, uh, you know, whether someone's excommunicated or disfellowshipped or whatever term you want to put on it in, in whatever uh, you know, religious uh, uh, background you come from. Uh, also issues of ecclesiastical government, how the, the church itself is internally organized. Uh, those are typically things that, uh, that secular courts abstain from deciding. Uh, ecclesiastical rule, customs, or law, and, and uh, conformity of members to church standards of morality. Uh, there, there are several cases in each of those areas where uh, the courts have made made clear that you know these are the types of things that fall within uh, this ecclesiastical abstention doctrine, and, and that secular courts should should abstain from um, trying to to decide. <laughs> okay, and I believe you said before that the. Um, ecclesiastical abstention doctrine originates with the the 
a religion clauses of the First Amendment. Is that right? Right, right. Yeah, it, it's uh, interestingly enough, uh, the the first case where it kind of came out didn't directly tie it to the Constitution, the First Amendment, but uh, ultimately it did uh, those those two things married up uh, as the cases progressed over the years. But uh, you can you can appreciate that uh, this idea of, of uh, what I kind of like to say that this stay in your lane, bro, uh, principle. Uh, is consistent with what we see in the First Amendment, which uh, you know, requires that Congress shall make no law respecting establishment of religion or prohibiting the free exercise thereof. And from that, we get the Establishment Clause and the Free Exercise Clause. Um, you know, basically, the, the idea that the government can't force anyone to endorse religion, uh, but at the same time, the government can't prohibit someone from being religious or freely exercising one's religious beliefs. Um, the interesting thing about this, uh, as you kind of dive into the details of the cases surrounding these two religion clauses, is you find out that you know neither one of those prohibitions is entirely absolute. Um, and uh, that there is some, <laughs> some bleed over some areas in which courts do get engaged in some of those issues, uh, which uh, is, is something that is also important for talking about the ecclesiastical abstention doctrine. Okay. Yeah, I I, I know often there's, uh, it's described as the, the uh, wall of separation between church and state. Um, right. But I, I think you go on to describe that that's maybe not the best description uh, what what would be a better description of the application of uh, you know the law or the courts to uh, the religion clauses? Yeah, but I mean we we use that language, and you'll obviously find that in in the case law here and there, uh, and and certainly in kind of the general populace when we think about uh, the relationship between uh, churches and the state or the government. And we think about this wall of separation. Although when you when you read some of the cases, and uh, uh, I, I think it, you know the Lynch versus Donnelly, which is a prominent case in in these religion clause area, uh, notes that the uh, although we talk about the religion clauses as erecting this wall, uh, they go on to say it, it, it's not a wholly accurate description of the practical aspects of the relationship that in fact exists between church and state. Uh, and another case that um, has been a very prominent case in this context described it instead as a blurred, indistinct, and variable barrier. Uh, that's the Lemon case, although uh, and it's interesting that we have in this conversation now because uh, there was a case that came out in this last term, the, uh, the Kennedy case, that basically said, you know, Lemon's not a, a good analysis anymore in terms of the standard for um, determining some of these issues in this area. But I, I think the concept of the uh, uh, church-state relationship being a blurred, indistinct, and variable bearer remains. And uh, I, I think that's still accurate. And so I, I kind of have used that uh, as, a, as, as the metaphor that perhaps more aptly describes the relationship between church and state. It is a barrier, uh, but in many cases, as the Supreme Court said, it can be blurred, indistinct, and, you know, there's 
there are some gray areas there uh, uh, in that relationship. Okay. So in um, in going on with the origins and uh, maybe somewhat wrapping up with the origins, uh, there's a case, an, an older case, that um, this Watson v. Jones that, that goes into the origins of the ecclesiastical abstention. Could you give a little background and, and talk about how that uh, uh, applied the, the EA doctrine? Yeah, so that's this. This is the case that uh, is is uh, attributed to, to which the ecclesiastical abstention doctrine is attributed in terms of the first time it it makes an appearance in the Supreme Court. And interestingly, it's a case that dates all the way back to 1871, um, and uh, it, it arose out of a property dispute between a couple of factions. In a uh, in a church down in uh, in Louisville, Kentucky, uh, and and the issue that caused a, a rift amongst the uh, uh, congregation was slavery. Uh, there were a certain aspects or certain members of the congregation who were pro-slavery and others who were anti-slavery, and they didn't get along very well. And ultimately, you know, uh, uh, kind of. There was a, a kind of a battle for control of the church, um, and uh, after trying to resolve that issue through the ecclesiastical uh, uh, adjudicatory bodies that are uh, were available within the church, there was a, a decision that you know the uh, the anti-slavery folks have it uh, that they've got the right call, and so the. Uh, the uh, anti-slavery folks were determined to be the legitimate local uh, members of the church, and uh, and the and the pro-slavery folks were found themselves on the outside looking in. Uh, and the at that point, the 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 main issue in dispute was who gets the property. <laughs> you know, <laughs> uh, so with the ecclesiastical decision, the. Uh, the uh, pro-slavery folks weren't very happy that they were left on the outside and no property and and you know not involved in the church and so they decided to try and and uh, get what they felt was a a, uh, a, a an improper uh, ruling uh, reversed by taking it to the the secular courts um, and, uh, and 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 that's where they ultimately went up to the Supreme Court and the Supreme Court uh, you know expressed what became to be known as the ecclesiastical abstention doctrine. Um, and, and in their ruling, they said, quote, whenever the questions of discipline or of faith or ecclesiastical rule, custom or law have been decided by the highest of these church judicatories to which the matter has been carried, the legal tribunals must accept such decisions as final and as binding on them, meaning the courts. So we're not gonna, we're not gonna have it as the court system come in and upset uh, the outcome of, of a, a decision that was made in the, uh, in the ecclesiastical concepts. And from that sprung the additional case law that developed over the course of, uh, you know, the next uh, you know, century plus of, uh, of doctrine that, uh, that led us to back to the ball versus ball case. <laughs> yes, and that's a great segue into uh, the appeal. So you get involved um, and and appeal the the trial court decision, and it goes to the court of appeals. 
And so what um, procedurally, what were you asking the, the Court of Appeals to do? And then more, what were your substantive arguments about what things the court got wrong? Right. Uh, so on appeal, we, 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 we address the issue from two angles, two, two uh, fundamental arguments. One, as we talked about earlier, there was kind of a plain language argument. Um, the, uh, the, the, the parenting plan that they'd entered into, uh, contrary to what the, the trial court ruled, didn't uh, uh, require that the children be instructed in the Christian faith. In fact, on, on its face, it says the children may be instructed in the Christian faith. Um, and, uh, and it also had language that said either parent could take the children to the church or place of worship of his or her choice when they have the children. So we, we just, uh, setting aside any other, you know, constitutional or ecclesiastical abstention issues, we just attack the, the ruling as, as, uh, as wrong uh, on its face, just based on a plain reading of the of the uh, parenting plan. Uh, so that was prong one of the argument. Prong two was was then what we've primarily talked about here, which is as a matter of applying the ecclesiastical abstention doctrine, the judge overstepped his bounds when he decided to uh, you know get in the business of uh, determining whether a church is Christian or or not. Um, so those were the two arguments that we made, um, and uh, if, if the judge got it wrong, even if you, even if the judge didn't get it wrong on the plain language, um, you know he, he certainly got it wrong on the ecclesiastical abstention doctrine. And whichever argument you you take, uh, ultimately this this is a decision that needed to be reversed. Okay, great, and. And can you tell us just a little bit about how how the appeal went and what ultimately was the decision of the Court of Appeals? Yeah, so it was the, so we had an oral argument scheduled in the case, um, and uh, we went to oral argument and and on the basis of the oral argument, we, we felt pretty good about our chances. Um, I, I think I may have mentioned earlier that the Court of Appeals um, granted a stay of the of the trial court's ruling. Um, so it, it, while the appeal was pending, the father was allowed to continue to take his children to, to church uh, and so forth. Uh, but when we got to oral argument, um, I, I will say that the judge was uh, the judges, a three-judge panel, were a lot more active in lobbying questions at uh, my my colleague on the other side of the of the aisle, um, and, uh, uh, and, and and they were a little bit more friendly in terms of the arguments that <laughs> the questions that came my way. Uh, but I guess I'll say what one uh, uh, anecdote that I thought was interesting is. One of the arguments that that the lawyer on the other side had raised uh, was that the, uh, the the church itself uh, has a whole section of its website uh, or a page on the website that is devoted to uh, addressing the question of whether 
the church is Christian um, and, and seemed to suggest that, you know, it wasn't unreasonable for the mom to take that position in the in the trial court, nor was it unreasonable for the trial court to make a ruling that the church wasn't Christian if, in fact, the church itself is addressing that question on its own website. Um, uh, but that, it, it backfired a little bit when one of the judges then uh, from the dais uh, uh, looked down and said, well, well, what did the church decide? <laughs> <laughs> Of course, if you read the website, uh, you know, ultimately the, the church obviously decided that it is Christian. And uh, uh, and that really kind of just played into our our argument that, you know, this is something that that uh, the church gets to decide as a matter of ecclesiastical doctrine. And, and uh, secular judges shouldn't be in the business of deciding otherwise. Um, so it was it was an interesting oral argument. Uh, and, uh, uh, you know, we, we were, we were cautiously optimistic about the outcome. Um, so and I, I, do you want to ask another question or, or jump into the analysis here? <laughs> yeah. So, um, so the, the court of appeals found in, in your favor and I, on the, on the, on the contract issue and on the ecclesiastical abstention doctrine matter right um, and yeah so if you want to um what was some of the court's analysis into the the ecclesiastical abstention matter yeah so so the 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 court first of all uh, agreed that the plain language of the uh of the parenting plan uh required reversal uh, you know, we we had made, taken the position that it was uh, uh, pretty unambiguous, and the and the court ruled in our favor on that. Um, the uh, uh, that both nothing in the you know, of course, the argument on appeal that the that the the mother had made. Uh, I think they realized that they were on skating on a little thin ice when it came to the ecclesiastical abstention issue, but they tried to frame it as. Uh, you know, we're not trying to say that that the church is not Christian at all. We were just simply uh, relying on the language in the trial court ruling where it said, you know, as stated in the, you know, as under the parenting plan, it, the church was not Christian. In other words, confining it to the subjective beliefs of the mother and the father at the time they entered into this agreement, as opposed to trying to make some global statement about whether the church in general is, is or is not Christian. Uh, but the court rejected that argument and said, look, we've got to look at, at what the plain language of the agreement says. When you look at the first clause, it says each parent may take the minor children to the church or place of worship of his or her choice. Um, that seems fairly clear. Um, and the court rejected the idea that there was something in the second provision that re referenced the Christian faith that somehow narrowed or limited that authority. Uh, uh, basically saying that uh, even though you might suggest there is some ambiguity in the sense that the form said to check one box and, and the parents in, instead check two, there's a way to read them both together in, 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 in a way that is uh, clearly allows a uh, father to continue to take the kids to the truth. So two of the, uh, uh, one of the judges 
on the three judge panel said that's all we need to decide. We don't need to get to the constitutional or ecclesiastical abstention doctrine. And uh, so, so his view was that we, we should just end the case there. However, the other two judges decided, you know what, we, we, we should go ahead and, uh, and look at the ecclesiastical abstention doctrine and rule uh, on that part of the issue as well, because the issue has been fully briefed. This is something that may come up uh, in future cases. And uh, it's, it would be beneficial to be clear about what the law is on this and on a going forward basis. So with that, the, uh, the, the majority of the, uh, of the appellate panel went ahead and, and considered the ecclesiastical abstention doctrine and concluded that, and this is again quoting from the ruling that the ecclesiastical abstention doctrine barred the superior court from considering whether Father's Church is part of the Christian faith under the parenting plan. Um, they went on to say the court dove into an ecclesiastical matter by addressing whether the Father's Church is part of the Christian faith and amb the ambiguities surrounding the phrase the Christian faith, faith thrust the court directly into a matter of theological controversy in which it could not take part. Uh, so basically shut that down, uh, you know, went on to say very clearly that courts are not the appropriate form to assess whether someone who self-identifies as Christian qualifies to use that term. And even though the question was presented in the context of interpreting a parenting plan, the court did not resolve it through neutral principles of law, but instead engaged in the exact type of inquiry into church doctrine or belief that the First Amendment prohibits. Yeah. And so moving on a little here, it's still in the um, Court of Appeals analysis of the Ecclesiastical Abstention Doctrine. They they touch a little on the, even though they found it in your favor, they did touch a little on the the nuances or the, the blurred barrier aspect, and in particular, uh, in the, uh, I guess what I'll call the child custody context, what did they, what did they discuss or kind of flesh out in that setting? Yeah, so it, there, there were a couple of cases, and, and uh, to my, to my colleagues on the other side, uh, you know, benefit and, and uh, giving them credit. Obviously, they made the best arguments they could, and there, there, there were, there are some cases in Arizona and elsewhere that uh, that reflect judges, uh, you know, kind of weighing in on matters that deal with the religious upbringing of children and doing so in a way that was upheld and found to be uh, appropriate. Um, and, uh, and so, like you say, these, these are some of the nuances uh, and in what I, you know, grabbed from the Supreme Court decision calling this the blurred barrier, uh, where uh, there might be circumstances under which a, a judge may need to, or a, a trial court may need to, Kind of cross into that blurred barrier a little bit, um, and uh, in the, the the court said, uh, you know, we observe that a parenting plan's religious education provision may be enforced without violating violating First Amendment principles if the dispute does not require a court to wade into matters of religious debate or dogma. And that's you know a recitation of of the uh, ecclesiastical abstention doctrine that makes sense. 
but it's interesting that in those cases, and if you drill down in them a little bit more, um, you know, they, uh, they, they reflect that, um, that the judges only do so when, uh, uh, when there is a, a very high standard, a, a clear and affirmative showing of detriment to the welfare of the child. So this is you know, much higher than the just kind of preponderance of evidence uh, that we might see in a typical case. So we're a little closer to what you know we might call a, a more of a strict scrutiny standard, as opposed to you know your typical rank and file um, preponderance of the evidence. Okay, and there's there there may have been more, but there was a case in particular that addresses that issue in the context of a child custody matter, uh, Funk v. Osman. Can you, can you go into that case a little and how that addressed the, how the a child custody matter application of the, the EA doctrine applies to child custody? Yeah, so this is this is one of the this is a, definitely a blurred barrier case and and was cited by the mother's uh, uh, counsel in their in their briefs to the court of appeals. It, uh, it it involved a father and mother who were Jewish throughout their marriage and at the time of divorce. And uh, at the divorce, the mother was awarded sole decision making authority about the uh, the rel religious training of their minor child. Uh, after the divorce, the mother converted to the Lutheran church and became uh, a lay minister. Uh, father was upset about that and petitioned the court for an order to raise the, the child as a Jew. Uh, and it's, it's important to note that at the time this went on, this, the child at issue was five years old, uh, which is, is a material distinction from the Ball case in which both of the children at issue were, were well into their uh, teenage years. Um, the other facts that were important here in the Funk versus Osma case is that there were, there were three psychologists who testified that raising the child in, in two religion wasn't two religion wasn't in the child's best interest, not just because there was a philosophical debate between or an, a religious debate between the parents, but that it was affirmatively affecting the child in ways that were, uh, uh, you know, physically manifesting the, the anxiety it's in psychosomatic ways. And that, this was a child who was potty trained, who reverted to soiling his pants. And there were similar types of uh, uh, testimony about the psychological impacts of this, this uh, kind of battle between the parents on religious upbringing on the child. And in that case, the trial court enjoined the father from subjecting the, the child to the former religious Jewish training or indoctrination uh, at, in, in looking at that uh, best interest of the child standard and determining that that was a clear and affirmative showing of detriment to the welfare of the child. Um, and uh, uh, so it, it's... That's the kind of thing where the courts might step into that blurred barrier area. Here, you know, it was a fairly um, easy to distinguish because we're dealing with teenagers. There weren't any, you know, psycho psychologists getting up there and testifying that this was detrimental to the kids. 
the best they could do in their brief was say, well, you know, the teenage son didn't really like to wear a white shirt and tie to church on Sunday. Well, that's not the kind of stuff that that uh, is a clear affirmative showing of detriment to the child. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think um, I think many teenagers can uh, relate to that. Right. 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 So that that cases that was a primary case and cases like that were what the uh, appellants here tried to or the appellees tried to rely upon in their briefing. Uh, but the court found them distinguishable for the, for the reasons that we, we just talked about. OK. They're moving on to additional nuances to uh, the application of the the uh, EA doctrine is this uh, one called the application of neutral principles of law. Now, uh, there's a there's a case that goes into this, a fairly recent one. Um, this Christakis v. Uh, Deitch was curious. Was this? Uh, I, I'm I'm assuming this wasn't used at all in in the Ball case. No, it, we, it wasn't published at the time of oral argument, but it was interesting because it came out literally nine days before the ball decision was issued. Um, and, and it did reference and talked about the ecclesiastical abstention doctrine. So we were very interested in, <laughs> in, this, in this decision. Um, it didn't involve a custody issue, uh, but it was, it was about a... Uh, uh, a, a, a member of a, a Jewish community who sued uh, his rabbi uh, uh, on tort-based claims, uh, intentional infliction of emotional distress, uh, false light invasion of privacy, relating to accusations against the plaintiff uh, uh, regarding alleged grooming of children for molestation. Uh, and they were they were based on the letter that the in part on the letter that the rabbi had sent to the religious community's lawyer and the local police chief, barring the plaintiff from attending events sponsored by the religious community. And uh, um, the trial court had granted the rabbi's motion to dismiss using or relying upon the ecclesiastical abstention doctrine. And that's what was taken up on appeal. Well, on appeal, uh, this is another case in which the court said, um, you know, the ecclesiastical abstention doctrine does not preclude the court from uh, from deciding the issues at play here. And although they acknowledge that the EA doctrine uh, precludes courts from weighing in on theological controversies, church discipline, ecclesiastical government, conformative members to church standards and morals, this case did not involve that. Uh, it, in this case, when it, the, the, the secular court is able to determine whether there were torts that were committed, uh, a false life, invasion of privacy, and, and intentional infliction of emotional distress, based on neutral, neutral principles. And so the court, the, in, in reversing the trial court's decision on EA grounds, the Court of Appeals said, you know what? The court does not need to get into uh, religious doctrine here. Instead, the court could resolve these court-based claims by uh, applying neutral principles of law uh, that don't require resolving religious doctrine. 
and so and, and reinforce the idea that the court may entertain disputes within religious organizations, even if some ecclesiastical matters are incidentally involved. Uh, so, and, and interestingly, I think it's important to note that even though the, the Court of Appeals here reversed the trial court's ruling on ecclesiastical abstention grounds, it noted that the plaintiff was not seeking reinstatement in the religious community. Um, uh, so, uh, and that expulsion from the religious community was an ecclesiastical matter, and if that had been uh, an issue in dispute in the litigation and the ecclesiastical abstention doctrine would have precluded the trial court from weighing in on that issue. But since it could resolve the tort issues based on neutral principles of law, then the EA doctrine did not did not preclude the court from uh, reviewing those matters and making decisions if, uh, if appropriate. And now would, would your opponent or the ball court have been able to rely on the neutral principles exception? And if if not, why not? Well, uh, it, interesting, I, I don't think they, they didn't raise that issue, if I recall correctly, and uh, they may have. Uh, but here, you know, there there wasn't really, I, I guess the, they, they, they tried to raise that in the sense of saying this was about just two people's subjective beliefs. Uh, and an ambiguity in their parenting plan document, as opposed to making some sort of pronouncement about what the what the church actually uh, uh, is or is not in terms of uh, Christianity and and, and its doctrine. Um, so, uh, uh, but I I think that the way the court looked at it is, you you can't decide an issue like this without necessarily entangling yourself into a doctrinal dispute about, you know, the the, the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter Day Saints. Um, so, so here it just wasn't possible for the trial court to disentangle the the, the religious doctrinal issue from, uh, you know, some neutral secular principle. Yeah. Um, so, in your presentation of materials you and in taking the nuances a little further we get into this area that to me is taking the application of the neutral application or the neutral principles of law and exception just a little bit further with this inseparable versus incidental nuance and what what could you tell us about about that nuance yeah, so and you're right. This is kind of a, a an add-on, kind of a, a sub uh, 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 blurred barrier uh, on the neutral principles uh, idea, uh, and and part of that analysis is uh, you know whether in applying you know, neutral principles of law, the extent to which you are treading on uh, potential ecclesiastical matters. And courts have, have uh, made this distinction between uh, uh, issues that are inseparable from ecclesiastical doctrine and those that are merely incidental. Um, and, and we see this, I think, in other First Amendment analyses on the re religious clause issues uh, as well. Um, you know, just, just because in applying a neutral principle of law, it's possible that there may be some incidental impact 
on uh, a, uh, a, a religious, or the reflection of some religious belief, but just because there's some incidental impact doesn't necessarily mean that it violates First Amendment principles. Um, and that's the concept that has been uh, 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 exemplified in the, in the EA doctrine cases as well. Um, so, uh, you know, you can, you can adjudicate issues of, uh, of sometimes, well, uh, so, so that, that's the basic idea behind it. What, what is the Debroda case and what does that case teach about this inseparable, uh, exception? Yeah, so this this was a case about a uh, a, a a a minister or a temporary priest uh, here in the in the Phoenix area. And there's obviously a, a lot more history behind it, uh, but uh, ultimately um, he was removed from his appointment as a temporary priest. He was living on church property, uh, but he, he the local church locked him out of the of the property, re retained the property that he had in. Uh, his apartment, and uh, uh, and of course he objected to that, and internally within the church court system uh, appealed that, and, and it was determined that he he wasn't terminated in compliance with the rules of the church, and they ordered the church to pay this priest uh, and to return his belongings, but they didn't set any amount, they didn't say exactly you know what what you would have to pay him, what you owe him because of the the impropriety in, in the way that you handled his uh, uh, departure as a temporary priest. Uh, uh, so the church did return his belongings, didn't pay him. And so then he went to the secular court and said, hey, you know, I, I should get I should get paid and I need my belongings back. Um, and in in looking at the issue of whether whether the the, the secular court could weigh in on these issues, um, the, uh, the the court recognized that his contract claims would have involved the trial court in matters of internal church discipline, faith, and organization. But here, uh, the, the 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 church court had already made the substantive decision, had decided this priest was uh, in, inappropriately uh, uh, terminated, and uh, and ordered a remedy. It just didn't set the amount, uh, and uh, and that was something that a secular court could do without getting into religious doctrine. Um, basically, saying you know a court could come in and say this is how much your property was worth that the that the uh, uh, ecclesiastical court determined was was inappropriately taken from you, or this is how much the, the payment ought to be, and we can do that based on neutral principles. Even if there is some incidental relationship to uh, to uh, religion underlying that, uh, you know, the court said, just quoting, setting the amount of, of Dobrota's damages in conformity with the ecclesiastical decision would not involve deciding issues of ecclesiastical doctrine uh, or belief. Uh, so that's to be separated from uh, or, or, or distinguished from. Uh, a, a determination about whether it was appropriate to divest the uh, the priest from his priestly duties, or whether it was appropriate, you know, to cut off his utilities or take his belongings, 
Um, and those are things that they, they wouldn't weigh in on, uh, but that was something that was already decided in the ecclesiastical uh, context and we didn't, the trial court wouldn't need to weigh in on those issues. Do you think here this is like a court's attempt at a happy medium here, or could you see there being some some difficulties in certain factual situations of applying this, or or do you think this is kind of a happy balanced approach? Well, you know, I, I'm not sure I, I, I would think I would call it a happy medium, but I think it's an illustration that facts matter. Um, and in, in uh, I think, First Amendment context in general, that's always the case that, uh, you know, you really need to understand the facts clearly in order to do the analysis and, and have a sense of where the case should go. Um, so here, certainly there was an argument that there was some overlap and something that may uh, cross the uh, the boundaries into inappropriate uh, ecclesiastical abstention. Uh, but uh, but I, I, I can follow the court's analysis. You know, we're 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 simply deciding, you know, what the damages are, and we can do that without having to get into any sort of doctrine. Um, so I don't know if it's a happy medium, but it's certainly a a clarification about uh, where the fringes of that blurred barrier uh, begin and end. Okay. In your research of uh, ecclesiastical abstention, did you come across? it in case law in the application of the doctrine in in other contexts uh, that you know maybe aren't necessarily child custody or neutral principles of law or the inseparable exceptions yeah so we, we uh, i tried to include in the presentation a little bit more about how this how this does uh, apply in other contexts um, uh, certainly it applies in cases where suspension or expulsion from the church or the religious, religious society is at play. Um, you're, you're, you're not going to be able to go to a secular court and say, you know, the church was wrong in their decision to expel me uh, from the church. And it's interesting in this case, to it, it, there's a case, uh, a Supreme Court case, the Serbian East, Eastern Orthodox Diocese for the United States and Canada versus Milivojevic uh, points this out, that the extent to which the EA uh, doctrine applies. Uh, in, in that case, the, 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 the plaintiff, who was uh, an expelled member of the church, uh, said, you know what, I get it. I understand that in general, that court shouldn't be deciding whether you, you know, should or shouldn't be expelled from a church or excommunicated. But what if I can prove that there was fraud or collusion or that the decision to expel me was arbitrary under the church's own parameters for deciding these issues. Uh, and, and that raised kind of an interesting issue, right? Uh, well, well can, can, a, can a secular court come in and say, even if they can't decide the doctrinal issue, can they say, well, the church is, isn't even following its own policies? or that it's actually engaged in affirmative fraud or collusion in applying those to members of its congregation. And the Supreme Court was very clear in upholding the EA doctrine in those contexts, saying there is no arbitrariness exception 
to the EA doctrine. So even if your claim is based on fraud or collusion or arbitrary application of the church's own rules and standards, that's not something that's reviewable in a secular court. So it, it really emphasized the, the extent to which the broad scope of the EA doctrine in the context of, uh, you know, uh, a suspension or expulsion of, of uh, church membership. So that's that's a, a big one. Uh, another one is and that has also been the subject of several cases more recently in, in, in the last you know, 10, 11 years or so. We've got had a several cases that have talked about the, what, what's become known as the ministerial exception, um, which has to do with uh, church's ability to hire and fire individuals and, and the extent to which churches may be uh, required to uh, be, be to comply with uh, otherwise applicable doctrines of, of uh, or, or, or legal requirements that prohibit discrimination uh, on you know, race or disability or things of that nature. Um, and so there have been several cases that have come out and applied the EA doctrine in, in the context of employment disputes. Where does the court come out on on those matters, or what uh, what is the ministerial exception? Yeah, I mean, the, the basic idea behind the ministerial exception is that at the end of the day, churches, uh, religious organizations get to decide whether to accept or retain an unwanted minister. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> uh, if if uh, if that person doesn't subscribe to the, the 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 beliefs and the principles, or somehow is is uh, is is deemed not to be within the, uh, the religious bounds of the organization or church that's applying it, then they they are at liberty to be able to to let that minister go, um, and uh, depriving the church uh, of control over the selection of those who will personify its beliefs is not something that a secular court should be should be doing. Um, and so that's that's where they come down. There's broad discretion amongst religious. Uh, uh, organizations and churches to be able to decide who are their ministers. Um, so at this point, and where the case law has gone from there is, is well, who's a minister? <laughs> <You know? laughs> so there's been some argument about that, and, and uh, uh, not every employee uh, is a minister, um, and the courts have, have suggested that just giving someone a title of a minister is not enough. You can't just make form elevate form over substance um, and uh, so there is some again part of the the uh, blurred barrier has uh, kind of shifted to that context for the ministerial exception doctrine uh, is, is this a minister or not and what do you have to what do you have to establish in order to to uh, um, fall within the ministerial exception so there's still you know there's still arguments that are out there being debated in that area So room room for for future claims, I'm sure, and, and future arguments in that area. Well, you know, we're we're lawyers, so we're always yeah. creative, and we we can find ways to distinguish things. <laughs> <laughs> um, did your research uh, through your research were there other contexts? Um, I 
I see here in the material, there's property disputes and, and tort claims as well. Right. Yeah, both of those, I think, are, are uh, uh, you know, we've talked a little bit about each one of those. The Watson case from 1871 is a, is a great example of property disputes. Yeah. With contending factions in the church. Uh, that, that obviously was the first case in which uh, what came to be known as the EA doctrine was, was uh, uh, applied. Um, and then we've got in the Christakis case an example of torts and other claims that oftentimes can be uh, decided uh, without uh, delving into or at least no more than incidentally uh, rubbing up against uh, uh, ecclesiastical issues. Uh, so those are the contexts and uh, other contexts in which we see this uh, being a, uh, uh, in the border barrier boundary. Um, in that case, you know, it's, it's I think encapsulated in the Christakis case, the court encapsulated how it worked in, in the tort context. It says, though the plaintiff's claims arose against a religious backdrop, they were substantively neutral tort claims not implicating ecclesiastical extension. So that provides a framework. If, uh, you know, you, you find yourself arguing one of these cases, that's that's really where the battle is going to be. Um, is this just a claim that arises against a religious backdrop, or is this something that in, implicates ecclesiastical doctrine in which, uh, you know, the court has to go beyond neutral principles and needs to, and is, is going to end up getting itself mixed up in trying to figure out you know, what, what the uh, a substantive doctrinal you know, issues are with respect to the church? Well, Dave, this has been an incredibly informative conversation. We'll, I'll end it with asking you about what what would you say are your main takeaways from your involvement with this appeal, the, the ball matter, and also your research into the ecclesiastical abstention doctrine? I think in terms of takeaway on the, the legal front, uh, the EA doctrine, it precludes courts from deciding issues of faith or doctrine, church discipline, ecclesiastical government, ecclesiastical rule, custom, or law, or uh, conformity of members of church to standards of morality. Uh, on the, uh, the 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 gray area or border barrier side, they can step in uh, on these matters if the disputes are incidentally connected to religion. Uh, they can apply neutral principles of law that don't require adjudicating religious doctrine. And specifically in, in the case of child custody, if there's a clear and affirmative showing of detriment to the welfare of the child, at least, you know, that's in Arizona, which is essentially a strict scrutiny standard. As always, these types of cases are very fact specific. Um, and so those are kind of my takeaways on the legal side. Uh, on, on the personal side, you know, I, I was very gratified to have an opportunity to participate obviously happy that the outcome was uh, favorable to our client and I think established some, uh, some some good law here in Arizona that provides some clarity on this issue on a going forward basis. And, and frankly, just as a member of the, uh, of the law society, this is uh, you know something that I hope uh, all members of the society kind of look for opportunities to be able to, to uh, uh, exemplify the mission of the law society in their in their practice of law in other ways, and this was uh, a, a good example and a good opportunity for me. And and uh, I was glad that I was I was able to help out this client and and uh, do some good 
outside of an area that's normally in my my general uh, you know legal practice. So uh, it was it was a great experience. Great. Well, Dave, thanks so much again for your time and in sharing your experience and your knowledge with us. Um, I think we've benefited greatly and wish you the best of luck in all your, your future endeavors. Hey, thanks for the opportunity. Good, good to visit with you. All right. Take care. All right. Have a good one.